Good morning, church. Today is, like I said, Reformation Sunday, a day to remember that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that our ultimate authority to know that is the Scripture alone, and that we are justified for God's glory alone. We are an EFCA church, and for those of you who are new here, that means evangelical free. And our roots go right back to the Reformation in Europe, historically, all the way back to the free churches in Scandinavia. In fact, the reformers, especially Martin Luther, liked to refer to himself and his movement as evangelical. We are here at Lake Morton Community Church and in our movement as a whole in the EFCA, historically confessional Protestants. And it's good to be reminded of that. What that means is we are a part of historic Orthodox Christianity and we are confessional in that we adhere to a statement of faith, which the members here know well. You have to align your lives to the statement of faith in the EFCA. Matthew chapter 10 Verses 16 through 33 is our text today. And in it, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sure that many of the early reformers felt exactly like that, like that was the case for them. Martin Luther was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to be excommunicated from the church and declared an outlaw, which meant that he could be killed by anybody in the Holy Roman Empire. And he was outlawed for defending justification by faith alone, which is the core of what we believe here. John Calvin was chased out of the city of Paris and lived as a refugee all of his life. Holdrich Zwingli, another reformer, died in battle defending his city over a religious war. And we can name more and more. Thomas Cranmer, Jan Hus, Savonarola in Italy, all of these were burned at the stake. And we don't believe that the reformers or any of these men were superheroes. They had many flaws. They were imperfect like us, but they were brothers and sisters in Christ who proclaimed God's grace from the rooftops. Something else we'll see today. They uncovered what was hidden and they brought into the light what was once in the dark. And for that reason, we honor them today and we strive to continue their work The church reformed, always reforming. Protestants, like their founders, are not perfect, right? We're not perfect. But we must strive to align ourselves with God's revelation in every way. Amen? Just as Martin Luther said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. That should be said of all of us. So let's hear from God's word this morning in Matthew 10. Stand with me as we read it. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. Matthew 10, 16 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles.
We are grateful for another opportunity to come before you and to hear and receive your word. Lord, we confess and recognize that it's only by your spirit that our hearts are changed by your word. So we ask now in your gracious and wonderful name and good nature that you would move our hearts by your spirit. Not just to know and hear the word and uh, know it propositionally, but that it would mold and shape us in our hearts. We thank you. We pray and we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started Matthew 10. We learned the names of Jesus' 12 apostles, and we learned that he was sending them out on a short missionary journey to continue the work that he had been doing. Because most significantly, we learned that Jesus delegated his authority to these 12 men, these apostles, to heal and to cast out demons specifically. But their primary focus on this journey was to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. We learned that that message would be accepted by some. But in verse 14 we read, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. So there would be those who wouldn't listen who would reject the message. And this week, we see that this rejection will often spill over into opposition and even persecution. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything for his disciples in this chapter and even points forward to the future where they would face harsher persecution. Following Jesus has a cost. And he's careful to make sure that they're aware of that cost. Verses 16 through 25 today talk about this opposition and persecution in great detail. But verses 26 through 33 are all about the right response to that opposition. So first, let's look at persecution, verses 16 through 25. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 16 sets the tone for the whole message, for the whole passage, verses 16 through 33. It's the third time that Jesus has referred to sheep since the end of chapter 9. He's called the people of Israel lost sheep, harassed and helpless. You'll remember that. He told the apostles that he was sending them out to those lost sheep, the house of Israel. But here, Jesus says the disciples themselves are like sheep. He's not sending out warriors here. He's not sending out conquerors into Galilee. They weren't even to have the most basic of defense weapons, a staff. They were supposed to leave that at home. We read about that in verse 10. So the disciples are like sheep in that they're defenseless to attack, defenseless to use violence. But it gets worse. Jesus sends them out in the midst of wolves. Let's not pass by this point. Jesus knowingly sends out his disciples. Listen. Jesus knowingly sends out his disciples to places where they will face opposition. He is well aware beforehand that there are wolves awaiting them on their journey. Not literal wolves. Well, maybe. But the point is, these are those who would violently oppose the message of the kingdom. 
They are like sheep, not literal sheep, but they're like sheep, unable to use violence to defend themselves against violence. But Jesus clarifies they aren't to be like sheep in that sheep are pretty stupid. Right? Sheep are a symbol, and we're a symbol here, especially of blind followers and the ignorant. Those qualities shouldn't define a disciple of Jesus. Rather, they're supposed to be wise as serpents. The word translated as wise here is worth noting. If you have a different translation, it probably says shrewd. That's what the NIV says in many other translations. But it can also be translated as crafty or cunning. Wise and shrewd both sound positive to English readers. We don't want to be crafty. We want to be shrewd. That sounds better. But the word in the Greek means the same thing. And Jesus intentionally connects that term with a particular animal, a serpent. Before the time of Christ, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And this Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint, was the main version of the Old Testament in the time of Christ that everybody used. All the teachers used the Septuagint. This is an important thing to know about history and the development of the Word of God through time. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was the main translation in use when Jesus walked the earth. In Genesis 3, in the Septuagint, we're introduced to the serpent, and the same Greek word is used that Jesus uses here to describe the serpent. The ESV translated it in Genesis 3 as crafty not wise. The point is this. Disciples of Jesus are not supposed to be like dumb sheep, but careful in their planning, like serpents. The shrewd disciple of Jesus knows when to leave a particular place. They plan ahead. They know the safe places to stay. They know who their allies are, and they use discernment to figure that out. They know how to speak well to people who might hear. But serpents, as we see in Genesis 3, aren't just crafty, they're harmful. That serpent, who was the devil, used his craftiness to tempt Eve in the garden. Disciples are not supposed to be harmful, but innocent as doves. So taken all together, the animal metaphors give us a clear picture of what a disciple should be. They're supposed to be gentle like sheep, smart like serpents, and devoid of malice like doves. Gentle, sharp, full of integrity. Disciples of Jesus don't come in guns blazing. They come with compassion and gentleness with the message of hope. A heart motivated to see the lost saved and praying that many would come to believe. But disciples aren't victims either. They don't seek out persecution, and they're careful with who they talk to and where they go. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And the next few verses flesh out what it means to be both. So in verse 17, Jesus begins to inform their discernment and teach them what to look out for. Being wise as serpents, they should, verse 17, first word, beware. Beware of men. 
For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus says they should beware of men, of people. In their opposition, people will deliver the disciples over to authorities who can harm them. Local courts in Jewish towns were in charge of keeping the peace. And they had the authority to order offenders flogged. Later on, when Jesus sends them out into the world in Matthew 28, these things described here in these verses will start to happen in force. One of the first things that happens to Peter and John as they start to spread the gospel is their arrest and trial in Acts chapter 4, where they are whipped and beaten. Paul would be dragged before governors and kings throughout the book of Acts. The second half of the book of Acts is Paul trying to get in front of Caesar. These things would happen, but the disciples are to beware of them. They're not supposed to seek them out. They're supposed to be wise as serpents. They would be persecuted, but they weren't supposed to seek it out. That's a very important distinction as Christians living today that we need to have. Persecution might come, but it's not something we should glorify or seek out. And Jesus says these things would happen for my sake. For my sake. That should remind us of Matthew 5, 11, all the way back in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is telling the disciples that this is inevitable for them because of him. I want to call verses 17 and 18 serpent verses. They encourage the disciples to live as cunning, shrewd serpents, being wary. But verses 19 and 20 are dove verses. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So when the persecution comes, when they are dragged before the authorities, they aren't supposed to be anxious about what they're supposed to say. These men, remember, these apostles were mostly uneducated peasants who would not have had any rhetorical teaching beyond observing Jesus. These weren't great professional debaters. They would not be naturally equipped to deal with a court of the educated elite, let alone a governor or a king. But that was okay, because Jesus gives them a promise here. He promises them that what they are to say will be given to them in that hour. Right when they need the words, they will be given them. But Jesus goes further. It isn't they who speak, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father speaking through them. And that definitely happened throughout the whole book of Acts. Peter delivered a powerful sermon in Acts 2, not long after denying Jesus. He does it again in Acts 3. He defends himself and John in court in Acts 4. Stephen, an uneducated man, recaps all of the Old Testament in Acts 7. 
And then Philip is given the right words to speak to the Ethiopian in Acts 8. And then Ananias is given the right words to say to Paul in Acts 9. And we can go on and on and on. The Holy Spirit equips Christians with the right words to say at the right time to win people to Christ, to defend the faith, and to honor the Lord. And that's still the case today. We rely upon the Lord to give us the right words to say in moments when we feel ill-equipped. Some have taken these words to mean that we don't need to prepare at all. Or that pastors shouldn't prepare a sermon or that education is not needed. Which is all untrue. These verses tell us to trust the Lord for the right words when we are overwhelmed with the situation we're in. They are an encouragement that our innocence as doves will be honored by the Lord. But we still need to be wise as serpents as we prepare and and we learn. So verses 17 through 20 are instruction and explanation of what it means to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But verse 21, here Jesus starts to describe the future. Look at it again with me. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. These things described here in these verses will not happen on their short missionary journey in Galilee. But they will happen after Jesus ascends to heaven and has given the apostles a mission for the whole world. These family divisions and disunity disunity will be one of the main subjects of next week's sermon. Jesus says there that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And we get a foretaste of those thoughts right here. Jesus' message of salvation for all people is a divisive message in the world. It is so divisive that even families will be torn apart by it as brother delivers brother, father delivers child, and children deliver parents up for death. In the decades following the resurrection of Jesus, fierce persecution was laid at the door of the church, starting by the governors in Judea, but then extending to the whole Roman Empire under Emperor Nero. Christians became enemies of the state, and family members certainly did hand over their own family members, whom they hated because of their faith. But this is the first time that Jesus mentions his disciples will face the possibility of death and martyrdom. Things are getting serious. We saw last week, according to church tradition, there was only one apostle who didn't die a martyr's death. That was John. Verse 22 gets to the heart of the matter. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The reason that families will be torn apart and the apostles dragged before courts is because of hatred toward the gospel and toward the person of Jesus Christ. This is the second time Jesus mentions that all of this is because of him, for my name's sake. Which is something that we should keep in mind, especially in our efforts to evangelize. The world that opposes Christ has as its starting point a fierce hatred of him. 
Only by God's grace, only by God's grace can we reach someone for Jesus. We should expect to be hated, expect to be rejected. But I would warn you now against appropriating this verse for every felt offense in your life, which unfortunately is a move many Christians have made. Sometimes we understand this verse to mean that Christians generally will be hated, which in one sense is true. But that's not the whole story here. Remember the context. Jesus is saying that those who are spreading the good news of the gospel, those he sends out will be hated. The gospel will cause division and hatred in the world that doesn't serve the Lord. And sometimes we can, again, wrongly appropriate this verse for ourselves, even when people are annoyed with us because of our attitudes or our unkindness or our thoughtless words. They just hate me because I'm a Christian or because of this view that I posted on Facebook that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. That's not what this verse means. Those who are doing the work of the kingdom should expect direct opposition And the heart of the opposition they will face is hatred of Jesus. But there is hope. Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So even though persecution comes, even though families are divided and the hatred of the world is felt, salvation awaits those who persevere to the end. Salvation here refers to salvation of the whole person, salvation in Jesus Christ. We are not guaranteed deliverance from persecution bodily, as the book of Acts and history reveals to us. But we are safe eternally in the arms of our Savior, who will faithfully see us through to the end. Amen? The statement that Jesus makes is true for all Christians. We are justified now in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. Justification is a legal declaration that God makes about you. And it's true now. But true justification will always result in perseverance. So Jesus calls us to endure to the end. Enduring to the end means, especially in this context, loyalty to Jesus Christ and his message of hope in the kingdom of heaven. Notice how Jesus speaks in verse 23. When they persecute you. It's no longer an if. Now it's a when. The, the apostles will encounter persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. So he tells them what to do when that happens. When they persecute you in one town, verse 23, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now this statement is not without its controversy. But the beginning of the verse is clear. Don't stay in the town where they want to do you harm. Leave. Move on. The task of the apostles is to bring the message of the kingdom of heaven to Galilee. And Jesus told them last week to leave the town that doesn't welcome them. And he tells them the same thing here. Move on to the next town to continue the work. But then Jesus tells them that cryptic part. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I want to take just a moment and walk us through this text so that we can understand it together. 
The common interpretation of this passage is that Jesus is talking about his second coming. The disciples would not finish their work in Israel before Jesus returned in his second coming. But it's more likely that Jesus is referring to his ascension here, where he comes before the Father. Significantly, Jesus uses the title Son of Man for himself right here, which is a direct reference to Daniel 7. Listen to the words of Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which Jesus had in mind. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. When followers of Jesus heard about the coming of the Son of Man, they would have thought about Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where the Son of Man comes to God to receive his kingdom in heaven. Jesus will use a specific Greek word, to describe his second coming in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. The word, because it's very important, I'm going to give it to you. The word is parousia, which is shorthand in theological speak for the second coming. It's a very significant Greek word. And he uses it four times in Matthew 24 to talk about the second coming. And the word is almost always translated as come, coming, or advent. But here in Matthew 10, he doesn't use that really important word. It's the same word, actually, used in Daniel 7. So all this exegesis and interpretation that I've been doing simply means this. The disciples will not finish the task of going throughout all of the land of Israel with the message of the kingdom before Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, which is manifestly true. That work continued after Jesus' ascension. So for the disciples in the moment, Jesus is encouraging them to move quickly through the countryside with this message because this missionary journey would be short, only a few weeks long. They shouldn't feel bad about moving on from town to town, especially as a town persecutes them. There is a lot of work to do, and they won't finish it before Jesus receives his kingdom from the Father in heaven. Verses 24 and 25 restate the point. Students will not receive better treatment than their teacher, and uh, servants will be treated worse than their masters. The teacher represents the students, the master represents the servant. So as the disciples go out into the world with this message, they should not expect better treatment than what Jesus received. They called him Beelzebul. We'll see that in chapter 12. They called Jesus Beelzebul. How much more so will they mistreat the apostles and other disciples of Jesus? A student is not better than his teacher. And a servant is not better than his master. This is a profound warning for them that their expectations should be moderated. Look how they've treated Jesus. They're not going to treat you any better. And so it's a profound warning for us as well. When we are in Christ, we should not expect to be treated better than him in our mission. In the face of persecution, 
Persecution that is inevitable and because of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus are supposed to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we should know what's coming and trust the Lord. But in these verses, there seems to be a lot of potential things to fear. A lot of fearful things. Brother handing over brother to death. Disciples dragged before kings and governors. The world hating the messengers of the gospel. But then Jesus tells them second, to fear not. Fear not. Jesus gives his disciples three reasons in verses 26 through 33 why they should not fear. First, they shouldn't fear because it's their duty to proclaim what Jesus has given them. Verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Have no fear of them, Jesus says. And after what he's just said in verses 16 through 25, having no fear would literally take a work of God. These guys are facing public humiliation, the disillusion of their families, flogging, and death. These are just the things Jesus names in those verses. But he tells them to have no fear. And the first reason they shouldn't fear is because they have a job to do. Jesus has been revealing to them the truths of the gospel. He's been giving, giving them the message of the kingdom. That which is uncovered and made known here in verse 26 is the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he became a minister of the word of God to make it fully known. Then he calls the word of God the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This is the gospel, the mystery hidden for ages. Jesus is revealed to the world, but his incarnation was once a mystery. Salvation is now found in the death of Christ, but that was once hidden away. And it's the apostle's job to make known that which was once hidden and covered over. So have no fear, Jesus says, because the proclamation of the word takes precedence over fear. The urgency of the proclamation of the gospel should render any fear we have irrelevant. But this is not the attitude that we have toward the message of the gospel today. We do not feel the urgency of the message. We let fear rule us when we should let the revelation of the mystery of the gospel rule us. Jesus isn't saying ignore your fear or pretend that you don't have any. He's saying that the mystery of the gospel is in such urgent need of spreading that the revelation of the word is in such urgent need of spreading that it should motivate us more to do that than our fear of people. But that isn't the only reason we shouldn't fear persecution. The second reason we should not fear is because we need to properly fear God. Verse 28, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, 
Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus is not saying to have no fear of anything. He's telling his apostles, and he's telling us today, to have fear in the right thing. So what if people can hurt us or even kill us? Can they determine our eternal destiny? Can they throw us in hell? Isn't it more prudent to fear the one who can actually do that? A proper fear of the Lord negates any wrong fear of man. Let me say that again. A proper fear of the Lord negates any wrong fear of man. When we know that the Lord desires us to do his will and that disobedience to him leads to death and hell, then we'll have our priorities straight. Do not fear the one who can harm you bodily. Do not fear the one who can ostracize you from society. Do not fear the one who can kill you. Fear the Lord who has the power to throw you in hell. Wow, that's a powerful statement Jesus makes. But Jesus isn't saying that our main motivation to make disciples should be avoiding hell. The point is this. Fearing man, fearing man instead of God is a pathway to hell. Fearing man instead of God is a pathway to hell. But when we properly fear God, fear of man melts away. In case we start to think that God is simply angry with us and waiting to throw us into hell if we mess up, Jesus gives us a third reason we shouldn't fear. God cares for us. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples to be anxious about nothing. And he used a similar metaphor as he does here. Does God not know about every bird of the air? No matter how little we value them, even two pennies, doesn't God know when one of them falls? Isn't even that a death of one little sparrow within his sovereign control and plan? But look at you. You're not a bird. And God cares about you so much that he even knows the number of hairs on your head, even if it's not that many. So fear not. If God cares for every bird of the air, how much more does he care for you? You are of more value than many sparrows, Jesus says. You are of more value than many sparrows. God's love for you is immense. He knows every little detail about you. And his care for you extends all the way to the number of hairs you have. So does he have persecution in store for these men? Yes. 
He does. Again, every single one of the apostles will die a martyr's death, except for John, who's exiled. But does that mean he doesn't care for them? Or that God is not reliable? Or that he won't go to them in their time of need? Of course not. God is the great deliverer and savior of the world. The book of Acts has several examples of disciples being delivered from persecution, but they aren't always. Nevertheless, God knows you, and he loves you, and he has a plan for your pain that maybe you can't see. God loves you so much that he sent his only son to live a perfect life and die your death. How much more can he express his love for you than that? He has cared for even the separation between between he and you starting in your heart. He has cared for every bit of who you are as a person inside and out. He is the God of all creation and nothing falls outside of his plan. So fear not. He, is under, he has it all under control. And if our path leads to death because of the gospel of Jesus, so be it. God loves me and I am confident in him. So three reasons we shouldn't fear. We have a job to do in proclaiming the good news. That's the first. We have a job to reveal the mystery of the gospel to the world. To uncover what was once hidden. God has given that job to his disciples. Second, we need to fear God rightly. If fear of man is stopping you from spreading that gospel, you don't fear the Lord properly. Fear the one who can send soul and body into hell. But third, God loves us. God loves us and cares for us. And he is in control of all things. And he doesn't send you out in the midst of wolves as if he's not also in control of that. Verses 32 and 33, wrapping up our message here are a warning and a comfort. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus brings us right back to his authority, doesn't he? Which has never left all throughout Matthew. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one who was sent to save humanity. And he decides who he will acknowledge before the Father. So this statement is a warning to those who deny Jesus. Specifically, publicly. There is no comfort for those who fail to acknowledge Jesus in their lives to the world. Jesus says that he will deny those before his Father who deny him before men. That's really scary. 
And once again, it comes down to proper fear. Do you fear the Lord more than you fear men? This statement should spark some godly fear in your heart if you don't already have it. But the statement is a comfort for those who act in faith and acknowledge Jesus to the world, who boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, and who patiently endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus will trust that Jesus will acknowledge you before the Father. He will call you his own. He will welcome you into his kingdom. And right here is great comfort. This passage, the whole thing, Matthew 10, 16 through 33, is ultimately a call to faithfulness. And verses 32 and 33 are a reminder of that. Even when persecution and suffering come, even when our families break apart, and even when we endure hurt, the question is, Will we be faithful to the gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ? The opposite of faithfulness to Jesus in this passage is fear. Fear of man. Fear of pain. These are real things, true enough. We don't dismiss them. But the fear of the Lord overrides those fears. So properly fear the Lord in your life. Have your priorities straight. Know deep down in your heart who is actually in control of all things and that his plan is good. Properly fear the Lord and you will be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as you seek to proclaim the message of the gospel. And there is the big elephant in the room as we end. All of this application suggests that Christians should be spreading the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, revealing it where it was once hidden. A burden laid on each of our shoulders who are in Christ today. But Jesus says, as we'll find out in a couple chapters, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ in the world if you believe the gospel today. So we should read these diligently, shouldn't we? We should read these truths diligently and seek to apply them as we are wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Let's pray. Lord, there is... There's a lot in this passage. Lord, you are assuming that we are doing the work of spreading the good news of the gospel. So first, I pray if that's not true of a Christian in this room, that they have neglected this, neglected to acknowledge you before men. I pray that they would be stirred in their heart this morning to go out and spread the message of your kingdom. Lord, if there are those this morning who are overwhelmed by fear and even the thought of talking to another person about Jesus. Lord, you you have not given us a spirit of fear. And we thank you for that. We thank you that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit of peace and love who brings to fruition in us wonderful good works 
love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things. So we pray for the one who is experiencing fear at the thought of talking to somebody about the gospel, that they would first properly fear you in complete reliance on the Holy Spirit. And Lord, if there's somebody here today who does not know, does not believe, and does not live out your gospel of your life, death, and resurrection, we pray that you would save them. It is by grace alone that we are saved. And so, Lord, we pray that you would save them this morning. We love you. We serve you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.